Coming to you from the long-running music review website, adobeandteardrops.com. Both got hooked on the sweet temptation. Bringing you all of the amazing music that you're missing. I found my piece hidden in the story. My death will hold no need for mourning. From New York to Florida and all around the world, Rachel and Vaughn bring you the Adobe and Teardrops podcast. Both got hooked on the sweet temptation. Some ethical final destination. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 147 of Adobe and Teardrops. I'm your host, Rachel Kolst. Uh, <laughs> I don't have much to talk about this week either, because I spent most of the weekend sleeping off something. Um, many of you are going to be hearing this right after Thanksgiving, so I hope you had a nice holiday, and I hope it was safe and socially distanced. We're planning on meeting Rosa's parents at an outdoor restaurant, but the weather's not looking great, so we might all just stay home anyway which is probably what we should be doing. At the end of the episode, you should stick around because I'm interviewing an artist named Ellie Perry. As I'm sure you can hear from listening to these podcasts over the last couple years, obviously the best interviews are with people whose music uh, I'm very familiar with. So uh, this is the first time where I feel like I really hit it off with somebody whose music I was listening to for the first time. And I think you'll hear from the jump when the interview begins, why uh, Ellie's newest release, Glynn County, is really powerful. But stick around for after all this music, because you'll get to hear it then. So yeah, let's just jump on in. Uh, NPR, a couple of months ago, published a list of women's music and a whole article about why it's important. Uh, if you're not familiar with the term, it refers to sort of like music from the sort of folky feminism era that wasn't really meant to be a part of that sort of East Village scene. Um, a lot of it is very unpolished, um, and to the point where that's just kind of the point. And uh, I made a whole list of artists whose music I wanted to get more into, and a bunch of them. I was just like, I, I can't. <laughs> the songs do have to rhyme sometimes. Um, but you'll be hearing over the next couple of weeks other artists who I found uh, more interesting. So we're going to kick it off with Holly Near. Uh, this is from one of her more recent albums, And Still We Sing, the Outspoken Collection. Uh, she has more of like a folk and kind of like gospel vibe almost. So we're going to start with Ain't Nowhere You Can Run. Patreon subscribers will also hear Singing For Our Lives. And after that, continuing in the tradition, is Chicks With Dip an informal women's songwriting group in New York. Uh, each song on the album is written by different members of the collective, and we'll start it off with Catherine Miles of Bobtown, whose music I've featured in the past. Her song, Snake Oil Salesman. And then Patreon subscribers, you'll get, also get to hear Lunatic Fringe. But first, for our president, who is just about to concede as of Tuesday, November 24th, here's Ain't Nowhere You Can Run. <laughs> the warmth and the beauty in the light 
Snake oil and sugar pills, powders and potions. I've slapped fancy labels on generic hand lotion. Yet, shiny gold cases display all my wares. Oh, it's really cheap spray paint. They can't tell, so who cares? A two, a three, a four. I've got a soapbox. I will put on a show. I know the people, my people will gather round. I will tell them what they want to hear, confirm all their fears, so they will stay. I know they'll stay and throw their money down. They buy my snake oil, sugar pills, my sales pitch will give them chills. Take their dough and watch them choke Cause when I'm gone they'll still be broke Whoa, 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 whoa It's a skill I have honed Years of patience and practice I can read them 
I'm an artist of artifice Gaining their confidence, gauging their weakness I convince them only I have the cure Two, three I will put up some mirrors and make me some smoke A little dazzle for the desperate congregation Take that off your hands. All right, listen up out there. This is about busking. And busking is when musicians travel and try to make money by opening up their cases and singing their heart out. That's what this song is about. Listen up, everybody. I got me a following in 10,000 Facebook likes. So I booked a little tour for me at bars and open mics. I started in New York, headed down to FLA. Singing all my songs and busking night and day. And I am busking my way back to you. Busking my way back to you. I ain't making lots of money, but to my heart I'm being true. And I am busking my way back to you I'm gonna play in Georgia where I'll stop and eat a peach Then I'll head on to Virginia where I'll busk along the beach In Washington, D.C., perhaps I'll wear a sign Support this poor musician, he's busking all the time And I am busking my way back to you Busking my way back to you But to my heart I'm being true And I am busking my way back to you And I am busking my way back to you Busking my way back to you I ain't making lots of money But I'm loving what I do And I am busking my way back to you I ain't in no hurry Got no schedule to keep 
ain't gonna worry, I ain't gonna lose no sleep. I miss you something awful, but when I'm feeling blue, I'll write a little song about busking only you, and I'll be busking my way back to you. Busking my way back to you. And I am busking my way back to you. Busking my way back to you. Busking my way back to you. I am making lots of money, but I'm loving what I do. And I am busking my way back to you. Oh, yeah. Busking my way back to you. One more time. Busking my way back to you
end of that set was folk music veteran Stephen Blaine with Busking My Way Back to You from his latest album, Motel Blue. I did a little research on Stephen, and he does like the High Holy Days uh, gig at the bitter end, which sounds really fun, and maybe I'll go uh, when we can do that again. And rounding us out was Megan and Shane with the title track from their debut album, Caroline. Uh, they met in Los Angeles, sort of taking lessons and doing the thing, and now they were gonna do the thing in 2020 where they recorded the album and toured on it, and obviously that didn't happen. But they sound great, so here's hoping that they can continue keeping the music coming. Our middle set here is gonna be a little fun, a little instrumental, a little bit kind of all over the place. We'll start it out with the Pollies. They did recently release an album of acoustic versions of all their uh, you know, big hits. If you're not familiar with the Pollies, they've been in, I believe, Muscle Shoals for almost a decade now. They play with pretty much everybody, but when they are by themselves, they're just super out there in a really fun way. I was reminded of them listening to uh, Sloan's podcast, Country Fried Rock. I'm totally blanking on Sloan's last name, but uh, she is an actual professional unlike me, so you should definitely listen to her podcast. Uh, they're mostly interviews with artists, and I know she's working on a series um, coming soon about musicians who also like to run. Um, and the Pollies are her favorite brand, and I was like, you know what? I haven't listened to them in a really long time. So I went back to Not Here, which I think is from around like 2015. And these are the two songs I think of when I think of the Pollies, because they're the ones that get stuck in my head every time. We'll start with Lost and Patreon subscribers. You'll get through it away.
myself die Now I'm alive again My old self died Now I'm alive again Somehow we let them all get up to the top The living high in the house Spending all of your hard-earned pay Now they're whistling Dixie I'll deserve it a doodah day The grifters and they'll stiff you Now they're calling the shots Somehow we let them all get up to the top They're running their rack From the highest tax bracket now Man, I tell you, it's a free-for-all, but nothing's free-for-all, no how. was me. Capital apple, scrap a dapple dapple to d Flip it up. All salesmen calling the shots Somehow we let them slither up to the top Well, they wrap themselves around you And they give you pocketbook a squeeze There ain't nothing to this stuff And now you're trying to live on guarantees If you don't like my singing, if you don't like my song Give it a couple years, I'm sure you then sing along When your friends are all dead and your mama's been thrown in jail You know a presidential pardon sure as hell be saving the ball bail This song ain't original, can't call it my own I stole it from the text on a Rosetta Stone All the faces may change, but it's always been the same old game Now don't give me any money, cause I'll probably end up doing the same Although the criminals are calling the shots Somehow we'll let them all get up to the top They're living high in the hog, spending all of your hard-earned pay now they rob you on the highway and they call it a tax They don't even bother to cover the tracks I guess it doesn't matter when you're holding the stacks, oh no Just a little known secret that everybody already seems to know That instrumental track that you heard after the Pauwies was Juhan Ungbrian's Sail On, which is a single. You can find more of his instrumental music on YouTube. Then we got Risa Cobb's Grit and Ashes, which is a single. Risa, I played her music in the past as well. She started out as a blues singer, signed to the label. It didn't quite work out, and now she's just doing things on her own. And then at the very end of the set, this Wild Earp's Oligarchy Blues, 
which is also a single. He does like some awesome honky tonk thing. I was like watching Diddy TV for a lark. <laughs> I have it on my Roku app, but like I never actually watch it. And uh, it was a pleasure to see one of his music videos, The Last Honky Tonk in Chicago, come on. So if you're into that traditional country situation, definitely check out Wild Earp because he's got uh, a lot of like really smart, funny, traditional country songs up his sleeve. We're going to take a break. Patreon subscribers, we're going to keep it going. November is Native American Heritage Month, and December is, of course, gift-giving season in many cultures. To honor both, give the gift of American Indian art from Wild with a Y gallery in Austin, Texas. Ray Donway, the owner, is a retired lawyer of Chickasaw descent. On a fateful stop in Santa Fe, he was blown away by the art he saw there and connected with its heritage. Over the years, Ray has built friendships with Native American artists. The gallery is curated from his personal collection and fits any price point. Just use the slider tool on the shop page of the website. That's wild with a Y dot gallery. Happy holidays from Adobe and Teardrops and wild with a Y dot gallery. Rounding out, our third set is going to be like country music set with Becky Warren. She just keeps getting better and better, just kind of specializes in writing about outcasts. And in this album, The Sixth Season, she seems to be the outcast she's most focused on. Just wonderful songwriting. So without saying much else, it's my album of the week. This is one of my favorite songs on there, Dickerson Pike. Patreon subscribers, you're also going to get Me in These Jeans. Stretch to the didn't break my 
try. So do your best. Well, it was the weight of this whole world that put you to rest. Some say you've sold out. Hell, you barely bought in. This old world won't be the same without you, friend. With the hardest part to see him goodbye. As I watched the light go from your eyes. I've made peace with the hand I've been dealt Like an old wax torch Some hearts a man to mail Get far no being an honest man. We both seen some far distant lands. Well, I'm no better, but still it hurts. You've been the circumstances. Shit could have got worse with a heart's part saying goodbye. As I watch the light go from your eyes, well, I made peace with the hand I've been dealt. Like an old axe horse, some hearts of man to mail.
stuff it in the trunk Cause we ain't coming back forever What we forget, we'll have to leave behind Don't turn around, the past will grab a hold of you Up ahead, we live life by the mind Don't live life by the mind And all my means with Modelo at the madhouse Hold all the coats, talk yourself the phone With your hand on my shoulder, we drive to a smile Tell me about the spot, I first caught your eyes We ain't coming back forever What we forget, we'll have to leave behind Don't turn around, the past will grab a hold of you Up ahead, we live life by the mind
escape After Becky Warren was John O'Leary. You might have heard of him because he's also the lead singer of the Hang Rounders out in Colorado. This is a recording of a series called the Magnolia Sessions, which are these sessions using what's called, I think, binaural sound, uh, which means like super 3D. So I'm sure you're listening to this with some headphones and it sounds really realistic because these sessions were recorded outdoors outside of the anti-corporate music and Black Matter Mastering offices in Nashville under their magnolia tree. Um, They're releasing one a month, just a lot of, you know, the usual crop of uh, folk punk dudes, uh, maybe some dudettes later. Yeah, they all sound great. So definitely, if you just search the magnolia sessions on Spotify, a bunch of them will come up. After that was Martin in the Fall with By the Mile from their brand new EP, Nothing Wrong With This. And we rounded it out with Ryan Dunlap's single, You Just Got Beat. Uh, The holidays are a really hard time for a lot of people and definitely uh, can bring out triggers for the kinds of self-destructive behaviors we do. And it's not always our fault, as this song gets into. So before uh, we end the show, just a reminder, uh, if you want to support the podcast, You can find me on Patreon. You get extra tunes starting in January for real. We're going to do live streams. Uh, You get to vote on your favorite song, which is the song that's coming up next. And, uh, you know, join the Discord server. It's a good time. Yes. No more Discords. Uh, if you want to send me music, you can do that through submithub.com. Uh, I listen to all of it, whether you send it through paid or free submission. I think that's it. If you want to find me on social media, my link tree is in the social media notes. Big thanks again to Wild Doc Gallery for sponsoring this week's episode. So we'll get into Made of Stone with their song, The End, that was voted uh, the fan favorite from the Patreon folks. Uh, last week.
And next up, we'll head into that interview I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode with Ellie Perry. I sort of started it in uh, the middle of things because you can see we just kicked it off right away. Definitely download the song. Definitely check out Youth Speak, the project that uh, the proceeds for this song are going to go to. I linked to both of those in the show notes, so you have no excuse. It's a great cause for a great song. In music we trust, in music we believe, have a great week. I think that was coordinated. Yeah, good enough for the government. Yeah, exactly. That sets the bar pretty low, though. Especially this government. Yeah, exactly. I'm not a fan of governments in general, but particularly not this one. Yes, perhaps a government that is higher functioning. Yeah. Let me know when we find one. Yeah. Um, all right. So with that, I think we will definitely keep that part in the interview. <laughs> yeah. Let's just let everybody know that I'm all the way left right from the outset. <laughs> would you call yourself an anarchist? Uh, I would call myself. Oh, that's a semi-serious question. Yeah. No, no. I, I took it as one. I've listened to a few of your episodes, so I figured okay. we might veer into this topic. Um, I would definitely call myself an ideological anarchist or a philosophical anarchist. Um, I think that my confidence in mankind uh, or humankind is a bit too low to see it as an actual strategy that could be implemented on a wide scale. But um, yeah, certainly from a philosophical perspective. And I think that when you scale down to just focusing on a communal level, that it's definitely possible. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so with that, Ellie, uh, I'll ask you to introduce yourself <laughs> a little bit more uh, before we talk about your new song, Glen County. Sure. Um, yeah, take it away. I can't wait to get to the song. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm Ellie Perry, and um, I've never started an interview by with a political identification, so there's a first time for everything. Um, I am a singer, songwriter, guitarist, producer, visual artist, um, and a community herbalist and activist. Um, I am currently living in Northern Colorado, which is a place that I've had uh, creative and communal roots for a number of years now. I'm here presently in part because of the pandemic and touring not being a thing that exists anymore um, and not really being in a position where it's very safe for me to go home and be with my family. Home is Georgia, which will tie into the song momentarily. Uh, I think that was a rambling introduction. <laughs> uh, though, if, if I can ask, um, were you like touring and kind of got stuck out there or is this like a place to be? Um, it's a, it's a place to be. I was not touring. I did get stuck this year, but, but not from touring. So for the last, few, uh, uh, I guess a little backstory is requisite. Um, my, my husband and I live in an RV, which ostensibly was for the purposes of touring full time. Um, over the last couple of years, I've taken a lot of time off from the road for a number of reasons, all primarily creative and to work on writing new stuff. And so we've spent about half the year in Northern Colorado. Um, I have a big audience out here. I've always done well in this region. And so I would play here and sort of do local collaborations, record, film some stuff. And then uh, we, I have desert rat syndrome. And so we head to the border um, outside of Big Bend National Park, like literally on the border of Mexico and Texas for the winters. 
And that's where we were in the spring of this year. We were getting ready to leave and go on tour. Um, I didn't get stranded on the road. All of my dates were canceled before I got on the road. But we were supposed to be in Europe and then um, doing a record in Georgia and then touring back out west and spending some time out here in the summer and then COVID. So none of that. But we did get stranded in the Chihuahuan Desert for like five months because of the pandemic. So that was, wow, an experience. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's probably no safer place to be. Yes. In some ways. And no. Um, Mm. I I mean, I love the desert and I, um, the political introduction probably indicated some (laughs) misanthropic tendencies on my part. So being in a really remote area away from people sits really well with me. So it was great. And that, from that end, um, but it got harder once the border shut down, you know, because mm-hmm. my, I, I'm about two hours away from an American grocery store or an hour and a half away from a Mexican one. I prefer going over to Mexico. That ceased to be an option. Um, spoiler alert, they have better food, <laughs> at least <laughs> yeah. than, than, than we do in rural Texas. Um, and yeah, Texas being intensely bloodily red um it was it was a dicey place to be at the Mm. onset of it um and just even with all that space around you it started to feel pretty claustrophobic just like the threat of the outside world moving into a place that has like no medical resources or infrastructure Mm. whatsoever um i'm really high risk i have a pulmonary condition and so just recognizing that, like, if I got it down there in the middle of nowhere, it would probably not go very well. So we we eventually unstuck ourselves and came back up to Colorado. And now I, I don't think it would be fully accurate to say that we're stuck here now, but we are definitely mm-hmm. on hold here <laughs> for good. the foreseeable future. <laughs> in a holding pattern. Yes, very, very much so in a holding pattern. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of preppers were like, this is our chance, this is our moment, and just like yes. went out into the desert. <laughs> yeah, it, we're going to go off on a little side tangent, but it was really funny. So like yeah, I sure. mentioned, I'm an, I'm an herbalist, um, and I work, I, I do some work with a nonprofit organization that also has a, an educational arm to it, and so we host free herbal clinics for medically underserved communities. I've been involved with that group for a couple years, but I was teaching one of their workshops the week that the national emergency was declared, And the workshop was in San Antonio and it's this really, this community there around this organization is pretty amazing because um, its founder was a special ops medic, like a Green Beret medic, who in the military sort of became convinced that plants have a soul and will save the world. So he's just, which is like pretty accurate. Um, And he's just such a wonderful character. He's this big, gruff, burly guy that, you know, people see him and probably think he wants to make America great again, but he really doesn't, you know. Um, And so the educational arm of this organization has attracted like really far left people who are street medics for direct actions. And it's also attracted a lot of preppers. (laughs) And this was sort of like their crash course into what the organization does. So it had like a lot of, a lot of prepper overtones to it. And it was just such a funny place to be in this like 
55 acre rugged environment with all of these preppers from like across the ideological like spectrum when the national emergency was declared and I was like fleeing from San Antonio which was one of the first hot spots you know because um I think there was a cruise ship that was taken to the to the military base there the the air force base that's right yeah so it was one of the first really bad hot spots and like fleeing there and running back to the desert and all the input of the various preppers surrounding me as i was getting ready to do that it was uh yeah i'm sure it'll be one of those things like all of us and i assume that we're probably close to the same age range but we all remember where Mm -hmm. we were for 9 11 and we'll now always remember you know where were you when you found out that the world was going to explode <laughs> because of COVID-19? And yeah, I was around a lot of preppers who were really, really concerned that I didn't have enough ammunition to go back to the desert. <laughs> Glenn County is, I, we could circle back to the other uh, overtones you're talking about with feeling, going out in public and feeling unsafe and sort of like ideological tensions in Texas. But if we shift over to Georgia for the song Glynn County, you wrote it after uh, the murder of Ahmad Arbery after he was jogging yep. and was basically executed by an uh, off-duty police officer and his sons. Um, just to remind you about which person was murdered, because unfortunately there have been far too many that we know about in the last few years, but it also means that there are more and more people who we now know about because the media is reporting about it. Yeah. Um, so you're doing a lot of really interesting things, both musically and then sort of in the way you're releasing this song. So I think we'll pause a second so that we can listen to it. And then I've got a couple of questions about it. Awesome.
is not as insane The quiet from the east carves out a hollow sound And it is definite Standing your ground, screaming about your rights Throwing up a fist, clinch tight around hate you I mean, it just sounds so great. I feel like when you're, I was expecting you to have like a raspier speaking voice because I feel like you go to like a very different <laughs> sort of like gritty, like Americana place when you're singing. Um, yeah. yeah. That's listening to some of your other songs as well. I guess I don't have, it, I think that it's like a universal phenomenon that none of us really know what we sound like inside of <laughs> our heads. And I, I always cringe when I hear my speaking voice, but the record. <laughs> I, I guess I would just rather my singing voice be the world, the voice that uh, I get to share with the world. Yeah, I've gotten very used to hearing my own voice when I edit. Sure, it's always like every different every time. Like what? Like, I do like I really that? sound okay. like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, to get back to Glen County, um, I think like over the last four years there was like a lot of protest music, both in this sort of like abstract like we need to be good to each other and then also a lot of that was just like hyper focused on trump totally and i felt like a lot of that music isn't successful because either it's like really only ever gonna last be relevant for the span of the trump administration yeah and then stuff that's kind of like too general to be like an interesting protest like of course people need to be kind you know what I mean yeah but you would think that goes without saying it unfortunately does not but (laughs) yeah and I think there are some people who feel like writing a song like that and probably does count or is like a more radical act within their community sure I'm talking about Nashville for sure yes I I would agree with that other areas um as well but this song is clearly from like a very anti-racist perspective um and i was wondering why you chose to like write about it from an angle of talking about white complacency and as opposed to the sort of like a more universal why can't we just get along because i think that's that's what i can talk about and what i should talk Mm -hmm. about as a white person like that's my responsibility um it's it's i think that the most important thing that we can do right now collectively is like center the the leadership and the ideas and the voices of visionaries of color in this fight and with that 
sort of guiding me. Like, I don't, if I'm going to talk about racism, I don't have any right or any ground to be talking about it from any critical standpoint other than like my own upbringing as a white person and um and all of us who are white even the most devoutly anti-racist among us have inherited complacency and complicity within us i i really believe that um and certainly growing up in the south that is that that's just like a foundational <laughs> bedrock um, belief of mine. I've been around it my whole life and seen it. Um, I think you asked, why did I decide to do this? I, I didn't decide to, um, I really surprised myself. I'm, you know, given the introduction, it's, it's probably pretty obvious that I'm, um, you know, I'm committed to activism and, and I have pretty, pretty strong (laughs) and fully formed, um, political, political and ideological, beliefs, um, but that's never come across in my music previously. Um, you know, I grew up listening to protest music and it's been formative to who I am and, and I think to how I think about songs and certainly to the kind of art that moves me. But I think, I, frankly, I probably never felt as though I had the capacity to do that well. You know, I didn't ever write a, can't we all just be nice to each other song? Like, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for that, but I don't feel that my energies, creative or intellectual, are best served going that route. And yeah, I suppose I doubted that that I had the capacity to add something of significance to that conversation. So my ideals have always just gone into action instead. Um, and apparently 2020 changed that. Um, I wrote a song pretty early on, I guess, in, in April um, about the pandemic and sort of the overarching cultural and spiritual poverties that I believe we as a culture possess that have put us in this dumpster fire of a situation. And I wrote that when I was like, huh, okay, I guess this is going to be an interesting year songwriting wise, because it, it wasn't intentional. It just sort of tumbled out. And then this was the same. Um, you know, I've, I have lifelong ties to Glen County and, um, that's where my family lives now. It is where I would go home if I could go home at this moment in time. Um, and, and the Mont Arbery case really, really shook me a lot. Um, I think every, every slang of a black person or indigenous person, you know, by a white person or a law enforcement officer, it, they all shake me to my core, but this, this one's just very personal. You know, it's, it's in this small rural community. And I, I know people on both sides of that case, like you can't be from there and, um, and not have been at a bar with the people who pulled a trigger (laughs) quite, quite frankly. Um, so it, it really, it really rattled me. It felt very, very personal. And some of my closest friends and one of the collaborators, uh, on the music video, you know, are, are black people who live in Mr. Arbery's neighborhood and community. And it was really, really weighing upon me that I could not be there to stand beside them in the street, um, to support them, to support their vision for how to move their community forward after this tragedy. Um, and to like, not to go towards the white saviorism 
perspective, but to like literally not be able to stand beside them with like my 110, 115 pounds of white flesh and maybe keep them safer while they were spending weeks standing in the streets in front of these assholes' homes before anyone outside of the state of Georgia even knew what had happened. Um, and so I felt, I felt a lot of responsibility there. And it just, it stirred up so much about a childhood in the South. Um, and like a, a childhood spent as a white person in the South and a member of like the white liberal class in the South. And for, for those who aren't from Georgia, who have never spent time there, Glenn County is a really interesting place. It, uh, it comprises both the mainland town of Brunswick, Georgia, and a little series of islands off the Atlantic coast. They're, they're bordered by the Atlantic on one side and sort of the Savannah Marsh tributaries on the other. Um, it's connected by a causeway. And the county is majority black and majority people beneath the poverty level. But they almost all live on the mainland. And then all the white people and all the wealth is on this little strip of islands right there on the coast. Um, you know, and I wasn't there as this was going on, but I was hearing from my friends who were in the streets just like how agonizing and how totally expected it was that there was just this very polite brand of Southern silence coming coming from the white communities and the upper class communities there. And that is such a prototypically Southern thing. I mean, I think the argument could be made that it's an American tendency, but it is really, really like just exemplified by the South. I don't think anybody can grow up in the South and deny the existence of racism. Like we all know it's there. It is a glaring open wound sitting on the surface of daily life. It's just a matter of what side of the divide you fall on, but nobody's going to deny that there's racism there. But, um, but there's a, a, a tendency among white people to just not talk about things that I'm using air quotes here aren't polite. Um, and that's certainly not a, not a polite topic. So, um, it just, yeah, I think this culmination of, I, you know, I'm one of many people of my generation who fled the South in search of, um, hypothetically more progressive pastures. And I think that distance over the years has given me the ability to, to process a lot, um, about that culture and that place. And sort of juxtaposing that perspective alongside this like nearly spiritual responsibility that I feel to be there and to be a part of this work and to be unable to, I think it just kind of boiled up inside of me and, and I, didn't, I didn't decide to write about it. I didn't intend to, but I was, you know, standing in my RV one day looking at Mexico and, you know, probably chopping onions or something. And all of a sudden I just sang, if the cost of being black down here is a life, then tell me the price of being silent while being white. And I just went, oh, shit. Okay, that could be really, really trite and really hokey. Or it could be something real. And so I picked up the guitar and the song tumbled out. Um, and then the next day I... I called two of my best friends from back home, Drew and Maurice, the ones who did the music video. Um, 
Maurice is a black man, Drew is a white man, um, but they're there are two people who I really love dearly who I consider to be family and I felt like I needed some perspective from other people from there as to whether or not I just really missed the mark with the thing I didn't intend to aim at to begin with. Um, and so I sent them the song and just said, will you, will you tell me what you think about this? Because I, I have an idea I have an idea if it's not terrible, <laughs> if this whole thing isn't total shit, if it's not just drivel and like, all right, white girl, shut up, sit down, put the guitar back up, step back. Um, if you think that there's something here, I have an idea. And so I sent it to them and got on the phone with them both that afternoon. And it was when I was on the phone with them, one of them was like, hey, did you hear what happened like a couple hours ago in Minneapolis? And it was the the day that, that George Floyd was murdered, so. I mean, it's completely unconnected, but I certainly think that um, that moment in time galvanized us in our conviction to go ahead and release this project. And, you know, to go back to what we were saying about the sort of like spectrum <laughs> of uh, like reactions and songs, I think also as white people, we are like, well, if we're not like actively racist, we're okay, and I think it, it's a decision to become sure. anti-racist, but I think also um, that decision or that commitment is not really talked about very much. So I was wondering if, you know, describing yourself as anti-racist, if that feels like a good identifier to you, um, how would you describe that journey from your experience? Yeah, um, I think it's something that I aspire to be every day. And, you know, much in the same way that I don't get to label myself an ally, I have to, I have to earn that. Um, I, ha I have to earn being anti-racist. But yes, it is certainly like the guiding goal. Um, and I, I'm glad that this year that concept has come into, into conversation, um, at least on a wider scale, you know, sort of outside of of activism circles, because I agree with you. Like, that's not something that people talk about. They're like, well, if I'm not explicitly racist, that's, that's good enough. That's, that's cool. Um, and I think that people are recognizing more broadly now that that's not the case. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that's something that I've been aspiring towards all of my life. Um, I certainly haven't always gotten it right. I, I'm certainly not done with that work. The work of dismantling my own whiteness is, um, you know, one of the pieces of work that I'll be endeavoring to to tackle for all of my life. It doesn't ever end. Uh, but yeah, I think, like I said before, growing up in the South, I, I grew up, I spent most of my, my young life, most of my formative years between three counties in Georgia. One was a rural one in Appalachia, one was a metropolitan one in Atlanta, and one was a rural one on the coast, Glen County. And um, two out of three of those are colloquially referred to as sundown towns. Um, you know, and for listeners who don't know what that means, it means that if you are a person of color, probably most specifically a black person, uh, or you can't pass for being white, you probably shouldn't be out after sundown. Um, and I just, I always knew that, you know? And even going, uh, I always went to school in Atlanta. That's where all of my formal education took place. Um, and like, I went to public schools in Atlanta, you know, where I had a lot of black classmates and a lot of black teachers. And I saw like overt racism and overt white privilege and supremacy every single day 
from my most formative years. Um, and a, you know, a story that I'd, I don't think I ever shared with anybody until this year, but I have, I've shared it a number of times now because I've been trying to step up to that white person plate of having hard conversations about anti-racism <laughs> with other white people this year. And so I've, I've had it a lot and I feel like so many of those conversations, you've just got to go back to building blocks to the fundamental stuff, you know? But um, my dad was a book publisher and um, he, he took me to meet Rosa Parks when I was about six or seven. He had, he had worked, I think, on, on her biography um, and he surprised me. And I'd already heard about her in school, been very moved by her story. And, and I was just, I was just blown away when I met her in person. Um, meeting somebody who was like this mythological figure of bravery and decency. And I remember crying and how kind and patient she was with me. And I sat in her lap and she was so graceful and just really elegant. And she reminded me so much of my great grandmother, um, who would have been a peer in age in class with her. And they grew up probably, I think less than 150 miles away from one another. And this is probably the moment to backtrack. This is what I should have started with. I am of the generation whose um, anti-racist rhetoric in the educational setting was to be colorblind. Like that was the full extent of the conversation around racism, I think in the 80s and 90s. Like just be colorblind. You know, if you walk through the world that way, that's all you have to do. Then you're not racist and everything's great. And that moment of sitting there and meeting this woman and interacting with her and realizing how much she reminded me of my white great-grandmother, who she presumably had a lot in common with uh, from a socioeconomic standpoint, was the moment that that concept just totally deteriorated for me and that I realized that it's bullshit and that that's actually very damaging. Like, I can't be colorblind because the only reason this woman was subjected to the things that she was is because she's black. And my, my great-grandmother was spared from that because she was white. She knew a lot of other hardships from a socioeconomic perspective as, as a, an impoverished white woman. But there's no chance that she ever would have endured those additional hardships because, because she wasn't black. And, and that light bulb going off in my little brain of like, oh, to be colorblind is bullshit. You can't be colorblind. You have to acknowledge color and you have to fight to, for people to be treated as just basic human equals. Um, I suppose that was the start of that journey for me and I've just been trying to figure out how to do it right ever since. Probably not succeeding a lot of the time, but... Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think you could have that sort of experience and not, not have it pave a way forward. Mm -hmm. Wow, that must have been so powerful. Yeah, it was. It was, and it, and it always has been. But again, I, I, in sharing it with other people, really for the first time this year, um, I, I feel its power in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, it could also like come to have new meaning for you than it did for a five-year-old. Totally, <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely yeah. <laughs> does. And I, you know, I'm glad that that child um, 
I suppose had seen enough of the world to, to be able to have that, that moment, yeah. that epiphany. I'm glad <laughs> that I wasn't just like, oh, here's a famous person. Cool. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, okay, hi. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then my last question is around the way that you're going about releasing the song, as I had mentioned earlier, which is that uh, Glynn County is not going to be streaming it has to be purchased directly from your website, as I understand yep. it. And all of the proceeds are going to go to a nonprofit called Youth Speak. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak, tell us a little bit more about it and what your connection to Youth Speak is. Yeah. Um, well, it was as soon as Drew and Maurice and I decided to do this music video, I the whole concept for the release came fully formed. I said, I, w- I want this song to come out with a music video. I want the video to be a visual narrative of life in this place and how white supremacy and racism is just, a, you know, a veneer on top of daily life there. Um, I think it needs to come through the eyes of a person who's subjected to that, being a black person from this community. Um, so Maurice really... Drew did most of the filming and all the editing, but Maurice really nailed down the concept and the narrative and where we were going to film. Um, and then the final part of that like fully formed concept that came to me was that I, I, I would hope it would go without saying. It seems obvious to me, maybe not to everybody else, but that I could not profit a cent from this song. Like I, as a white person, making art about white supremacy and black death can't, can't profit from that. I would feel like that's, you know, tantamount to, to blood on my hands. Um, so I, I really wanted to find an organization that, that had some sort of universal appeal, um, but ideally one that, that had direct relevance to the community in question who could be the beneficiary from this project. Um, and, you know, and I, said, I'll bring some ideas to the table, I'll do some research, but Maurice, I think you should ultimately have the final say on on who this is going to. And he, his idea is what ultimately led us to to Youth Speak Justice. Um, There's another nonprofit in Brunswick called the Brunswick African American Cultural Center. And it's, they have their 501c3 status, but they're not really operational right now. And we had all just kind of heard about it, but didn't really know anything about it. But, you know, Maurice grew up in Brunswick and he said, like, I, if there's going to be a cultural center talking about black heritage in this place that is now so gentrified and so whitewashed and is like a tourist destination for wealthy people from Atlanta, then I would I'd really like to support that. And so I started trying to dig around and find contact information for people there. And I found a newspaper article about this group, Youth Speak Justice, that was not yet a 501c3. They're actually currently in, in process of, um, of getting their, their nonprofit designation. But they were kids from Brunswick who went to Mr. Arbery's high school and lived in his neighborhood. Um, and most of them are black. And they organized, I think initially on like a group text message thread because they were all stuck at home. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, right after the murder. And and they decided to organize to figure out how they could get young people involved in social justice work. Um, because they, 
you know, were obviously galvanized by this and, and really deeply moved and it's their community and they wanted to stand up for it. Um, and so they, as this informal group actually raised a lot of money and helped to organize for this pre-existing nonprofit. And I was just blown away when I read this newspaper article about them. And then, uh, you know, eventually I got to their website and started seeing what they were doing and that they were in the process of becoming a nonprofit, but they were just this, you know, a communally organized group of young people with, you know, a deep commitment to racial justice in the South broadly and in their community more specifically. And they were just doing so many cool things. Um, Like they helped to get an independent candidate on the ticket to run against uh, the incumbent district attorney, Jackie Johnson, who almost single-handedly covered up this case. And they played a really big role in getting this, you know, getting an independent candidate on the ticket against her. And he won. (laughs) Yeah. So she's gone now, which is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were doing voter registration drives all throughout the county. They, uh, Brunswick is kind of, um, you know, it's a bit, it's a big port town, but it's really sort of like rotted from the inside out over the last few years from a cultural or last, not few years, like 30, 40 years from a cultural perspective. Um, just most of the businesses in the historic downtown had closed, you know, just the, the consequences of second and third wave gentrification down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, these people like see the value of art and culture within a community that, that art is the lifeblood there. And so these kids have like raised all of this money and gotten a, a, an amazing mural project going in downtown Brunswick to sort of approach the revitalization of it from an artistic standpoint. And they've done youth led art shows. They're just, they're doing really great stuff. And since there's so many of them, uh, they have a lot of different projects on the docket and a lot of different visions. And I think that all of them are valuable. Um, and I think that these are very specifically the voices that should be centered and amplified. You know, young people of color from an impacted community leading the way forward. So as soon as I discovered them, it just, it seemed like a no-brainer to me. Uh, and I was prepared to beg them to like to work on the project with us because I just I don't know we probably wouldn't have released it yet if they had said no because I just can't imagine a better fit than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got in touch with the the young woman Natasha Woods who who founded the organization and kind of gave her my my pitch and my spiel and she graciously took it back to the board and they they all agreed and said yes so. Um, so yeah, we're, this is an in perpetuity agreement. It's not just going to be like whatever we raise this quarter, you know, if, if people want to donate five years from now to download that song, it'll still go to them. So they'll get gradual um, donations over time. But yeah, I think, um, you know, primarily the reason for, for releasing the song, for releasing the song this way was for all of those aforementioned reasons not wanting to profit off of this it's also um my like small critique and pushback against like capitalism within the music industry um mm-hmm. you know i've been recording and releasing music in a professional capacity for 20 years and i i think one of the reasons why i haven't had greater success with it is because i am anti-capitalist and because i just mm-hmm. can't 
convince myself to to play that game um i yeah i can't commit myself to living a life on a screen and social media and and to like selling myself as a brand and a narrative um and i think that you know streaming platforms are are so problematic in so many ways and i know that they offer a wider audience but they also don't offer a sustainable living to working class artists and so i'm i'm happy to pull my new releases off of those platforms anyways but and and i just don't have the capacity to monitor from my end as a small independent artist the fractions of sense that i would be getting from streaming platforms um that's that's kind of over my head it's over my bandwidth and i'm i i can't conscionably even have fractions of a cent coming back yeah. to me in this so it just seemed a lot simpler to to streamline it if you want to download the song you go straight to my website you know the videos embedded at the top of it a big artist statement from the three of us who worked on the videos right below it and then you get to choose the donation amount you know, that you want to contribute going from a dollar up to, I think a thousand dollars is the single biggest donation we've had so far. Uh, awesome. yeah, that one was really cool. Um, yeah. And download the song and you get the song and then all the money is going into a bubble in the ether. And you know, when we have a amount compiled, that's worth handing over to the kids. Uh, right now we, we are waiting for their 501c3 to finalize before they're mm-hmm. going to get the first lump of it which should happen within a matter of weeks. Um, and then it goes to them, you know? And I, I intend to um, to share receipt of those donations sort of for accountability on a public level too. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that matters to anybody else, but it matters to me. I don't want there totally. to be any question about, did, was she just saying that she's donating all this money? So um, yeah, so we'll do that as well. <laughs> I don't, like, yeah, so I'll also link to this in the show notes. Um, and then the money goes to a bunch of amazing kids. Yeah. I, I'm an educator myself, so I just love hearing about, like, high school age youth doing, like, incredible, incredible it's things. It's so inspiring, you know? And, like, Drew and MJ and I have talked about Maurice. Uh, we all call him MJ. We've talked about this <laughs> so much over the last few months since we found Youth Speak Justice. We're all in the same age range and, you know, like we didn't have people to talk about this stuff with when we were kids. Um, you know, I've been pretty radical since I, since I was a youth. I mean, I remember getting in trouble for, for, you know, writing not my president on a white undershirt and putting it underneath my uniform and casually discreetly unbuttoning it throughout the day after the Bush election. Um, yeah, but like, we didn't have anybody to talk to about about activism and certainly not about racial justice when we were kids. I mean, Maurice's experience as a black man obviously was different than mine and Drew's, but Drew and I, as white people, you know, from the South, like, uh, that, that wasn't something that we were talking about in our social sphere. Um, and I just, I'm so inspired and so grateful and, you know, Luddite though I am, um, it's one of the one of the boons of social media, right, and of the digital age that kids across the world can be having these conversations with one another. But it's just 
so, so moving and one of the few things that gives like my, my fairly crusty heart a good bit of hope. <laughs> Seeing young people like that with vision, with drive and determination, making a difference in the place where they live. Uh, and there's just, there's nothing that I wouldn't do to amplify their cause and, and support them and learn from them. Like we, we can learn from young leaders and I think we all need to remember that and humble ourselves to it and embrace it. They are, I, I think that there's so many reasons to be worried and concerned for a generation that's grown up like attached to a screen. But I think that the uprisings that have happened this year are proving largely that the kids are okay. <laughs> and, and they may save all of us in the end. Yeah, I'm, put, I'm right. putting we my money on that. We're the ones who made a lot of this technology or sort of created web 2.0 but like this is the water they've been swimming at the whole yeah time. and they know what to do yeah, with it they're doing amazing things yeah with it. they yeah. know how to navigate those currents and yeah they they will bail our asses out of this if asses can in fact be bailed <laughs> <laughs> they are pretty salty about it though which like i i was a little <laughs> they're allowed <laughs> i'm sure you have a much greater perspective on that than i do as an educator you know <laughs> well just all those like Millennials are useless and pathetic memes. I'm like, okay, but Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter. We did Matter. some okay things. We did that. Yeah, we did yeah. some stuff. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the boomers felt the same way about I'm sure. their ungrateful children and grandchildren. Totally. I mean, there's so many tropes. And yeah, I do think that this generation is like, <laughs> we're getting the side eye from all ends of the age spectrum. You know, yeah, nobody likes, nobody us, likes us. And that, and that's okay, you know? Like, yeah, we'll take yeah it. <laughs> I can take it. And I think the same should be said about like being white. Like I can, I can absolutely cope with the fact that there's plenty of people in the world who will never be okay with me because I'm white and it doesn't matter what I do and how hard I work. I'm white and therefore they're going to have a problem with me. Fine. That is your prerogative. I don't fault you for it. Like my, my ego has endured a lot worse than that. So yeah, like we yeah. can generationally we can be shit on by everybody you know as white people like i think that white fragility needs to like knock it the fuck off already and yeah we've been assholes pissing around the world and wrecking havoc for many many years there's a lot of good reason to not like us and that's all okay and none of it (laughs) none of it it should shut us down you know like guilt I think white guilt can only get you so far. Like you need it for awareness, but you you can't be immobilized by it either. We still have to contribute in in the ways that we can. And I just hope that this small contribution on my part does amount to something. And um, and it's not the end game contribution either. Got to keep doing the work and doing it every day and doing it within your communities and within your relationships within your families and start on that small level and maybe something spreads all original content is copyright adobe and teardrops all original music is copywritten by their respective artists